Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. And while you do that, I'll talk at you. So I think you guys have really become a second family in so many ways to us. And for about, I was talking with Jordan, I think the last four years, I think I've managed to come and preach here and visit you all every year. So you guys are making a habit out of this. I don't know what to make of this, but it's really sweet and it's good to see you all. So, and our growing family back there. So thank you for your love and fellowship and greetings from Spokane. All right, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 4. And before I do that, I'm going to tell you where we're going. So the main idea for this morning is sin's desire is contrary to you, so you must rule over it, okay? Sin's desire is contrary to you, so you must rule over it. I'm going to start reading uh, verse 1. We'll go through verse 16. We read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and the chance to be nourished by your word. We pray for the power of your spirit, for our souls to be enlightened and illuminated as uh, we receive this word, Lord, and may you also speak clearly uh, through me and the message I have prepared, Lord, so that your gospel and your truth might be received by 
your saints and keep them. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. There is something incredibly difficult about reading narrative, and it's not that we're unintelligent or theologically stupid. Rather, when we think about theology, most of us think in terms of uh, a systematics. We, we think in terms of categories like justification, grace, or God, right? And co- consequently, even though we are people who tell stories all the time and live out our own stories of life, we are deeply conditioned to conceptualize theology systematically. Then when we encounter narrative in our Bible, we find ourselves at a loss. And if, if you're like me in the pew, when you see stories like this, you ask, what is the point of that story? How is Aaron going to make a sermon out of that? And there are two questions I want you to have in your mind as we go along, as, as, as we con- contemplate biblical narrative. So two questions. One is, why is this happening next? Why is this happening next? Why is it that the author chose this material to come at this point of the story? Of all the details, of all the characters, of all the history, why this material presented at this moment? Because you see, the narrator made choices about what to include, what to exclude, and when we can answer, why is this happening next, then we're that much closer to grasping the theology of the text. That's question one, why is this happening next? The second question is, how does the author show instead of tell? Because narrative is, is an artistic form of conveying information. Their stories are beautifully, they're intentionally done. They're not just a data dump. They have, they have tension, characters, moral conundrums, their resolution. They have details omitted, repeated, dialogue in very strategic places. And the, di- the author is going to use all these tools to show you something. Rarely does the author tell you anything. And let me il- illustrate this. So there's one rare place, actually, your Bible, and this author does tell you why he does what he does. This is Genesis 2. So Genesis 2.23 says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, he's, t- he's telling you, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So do you see what happened? This is exceptionally rare. The author explicitly explains, tells you why included the details of the story, right? Why is it important that woman was taken out of man? Because a man leaves his father and mother cleaves to his wife. He told you. But when we get to Genesis chapter 4, we don't get this type of luxury. The author is going to show you his point. And let's, let's actually start by asking some maybe obvious questions. Why was Cain's sacrifice rejected and Abel's accepted? Certainly that would be worth telling, but no, we're shown, we're shown, as we'll see here shortly. And what about, what about context? We just finished Genesis 3, theoretically, in the fall of man, Adam and Eve, they're expelled from the garden, What does life east of Eden look like? What have Adam and Eve introduced? The author doesn't tell you. He shows you. And our story about Cain and Abel makes sure that we connect it to Genesis 2 and 3. And we read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, 
I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So we're tracing the lineage of Adam and Eve, and we're already anticipating conflict here and a hero because of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. This seems very straightforward. Surely we could just trace descendants and just figure out which one will conquer the seed of the serpent. Surely we can just mark evil people out by who their biological mother and father are. People descended from the people of the serpent, evil. People descended from the seed of the woman, good. Simple, right? And certainly that seems to be the attitude of Eve. She baits us as readers into this optimism saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But quickly, the, the author gives us no time to rest and squarely situating our story after Adam and Eve, we're given the occupations of Cain and Abel, the older brother, the younger brother. And both of their occupations are legitimate. There's nothing out of the ordinary here. So in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So that would be the, the worker of the ground. That would be Cain's job. Or two, This is 126, Genesis 126. A man is made in God's image to have dominion over the livestock and over all the earth. So that would be a shepherd. Abel's job. In other words, the author is showing you there's no conflict here. There's no tension in the story created by the differences in their occupation. Gardener, shepherd, this is exactly as God called mankind to be. And quickly again, the author tells us, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. There's nothing suspicious here. Many writers and scholars try to find distinctions here, but the author never draws attention to this. Remember, he's showing us, he's not telling us, and not once in the narrative will the author make any mention of what each brother brought. No offer of any details surrounding this event. In fact, this is agonizingly clear to us as readers. For example, why did, why did the elder, either brother bring any offerings to God? Who told them? How do they know what to bring? In what fashion did they bring them? Is this something God told them? We have no idea. This is very important. The author refuses to let you, the reader, dwell on this detail, and in other words, he doesn't care. It's not his point, nor should it be ours. The point that the author's showing you is something besides the difference in their offerings. In other words, the moral of the story has nothing to do with whether fruit is offered or chunks of animal flesh are offered. In case you're skeptical, it's actually just a step back. So this is written to Israel. And Genesis and through uh, Deuteronomy, they're, they're written as a, a unit. And they actually have categories for these. We read uh, in Deuteronomy 15, vowed instructions for a firstborn offering, Abel's. Leviticus 2, Deuteronomy 26, we have instructions for a valid produce offering, Cain's. Aaron, this is great, but why bring up Deuteronomy here? But we have to see this, because for Israel, hearing this story for the first time, they would hear nothing 
wrong. These are only two different types of valid forms of worship, two perfectly acceptable forms of external worship. And this means, for us readers, the author has shown us there's no conflict in what was offered, and we're just cruising along in our narrative. The author moves quickly to his next point. This is verse 4, end of verse 4. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Oh, well, that's a, that's a problem. Somehow, some way, Cain messed this up, and not just with anybody, Cain messed this up with the Lord, the very same Lord that Eve was so optimistic about in helping her conceive a man. That same Lord, that same God, did not have regard for Cain for his offering. Again, surely the Lord will explain why. Surely we'll get some answers here for why these were offered, for what reason Abel's was favored. But the author doesn't let you in yet. Instead, he starts with Cain's reaction. We read, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So rather than tell you what's happening, the author shows you, and on the surface, this seems to tell you very little. But as the story progresses, it turns out that this, this is the very point of the story. The author has shown us by telling us nothing about the details, nothing about the offerings, nothing about why they were different. The author has shown us by showing Cain's Cain's inner motive, his heart response. Simply by choosing to reveal details in the area of the heart, the emotions, your author has begun to clue you in on the real issue. As a reader, this should, go, this should cause us a great deal of reflection. By refusing to focus on the merits of any external actions, so think offerings or their occupations, by refusing to focus on any of those, it turns out that life after Eden, after the fall, has an entire dynamic that focuses on the inner man, of our spiritual selves, of that inner mechanism of our soul. Cain was angry, and his countenance fell. And this is the the increase of tension in our story. It is the battle of the inner man before a righteous God. Again, explaining nothing, we, we read further, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in case we were doubtful or curious as to the point of the narrative, our author repeats Cain's reaction verbatim in the response of the Lord. And a quick sidebar, this might seem obvious, but the Lord is a trustworthy character in Bible stories. I say this because this is one of the ways the author shows you information worth paying attention to. For example, can you imagine these words coming from Abel, maybe, instead, and how different that would be? But coming from the Lord, and having the Lord repeat Cain's reaction, tells us we're very close to what the author wants us to see. But the Lord repeats this in very vague, frustratingly vague details. The Lord just explains the formula. Do well. It'll be good for you. Don't do well. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. However, 
This might be frustrating as a reader. For example, we don't know what it means to do well. We still don't know what it means to not do well. We're left in, left in this massive tension, wondering and pondering the nature of Cain's rejection by God. How, how, can, how could Cain remedy this situation? We're also told something actually about the nature of sin, but we'll come back to this. We're going to focus first on Cain. So after Cain receives this gracious and merciful explanation by God, we move quickly again to the story. We read Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel, killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And it's, it all begins to, to come together. So many things denied us as readers are now coming into focus. And we now know the problem with Cain. The tension created by Cain had nothing to do with his external actions. It was something to do and wrong with Cain. There was something wrong with Cain in his relationship to sin. And in fact, so our, our uh, scripture reading this morning, Hebrews 11.4, it offers a similar explanation. We read from Hebrews, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So the author of Hebrews, he sees what we see, the issue of Cain had nothing to do with his occupation as a farmer or the nature of his gift. The issue with Cain had everything to do with his heart and lack of faith towards God in his offering. This actually is what separates people before God. We also have an answer as to why this text happens and comes after Genesis 3, answering our question from the beginning, why is this happening next? Cain explains life after Eden. And life after Eden looks a lot like Genesis 3, but worse. So listen to this. Adam and Eve are given the choice between obedience and life or disobedience and death. They choose disobedience and death. Sound familiar? Adam and Eve refuse responsibility for their sin. You know, the woman gave me, I ate, or... The, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate, and reject the opportunity for confession and forgiveness. Sound familiar? And this is a wild one. This is, this is a crazy one. One of the curses in Genesis 3 on the woman is this. Listen carefully. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Sound familiar? It's the exact same phrase God uses of sin. Sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same wording. See, the author is actually showing you something instead of telling, and it's, it's worth unpacking. In Genesis 3, the consequence of sin and disobedience is dysfunction in marriage, and rather than unity, the temptation will be for the man and woman to fail in biblical unity, particularly for the wife's desire to be contrary to her husband. But what's the remedy? The remedy is the husband's rule according to God's law. In Genesis 3, the, the husband failed in applying God's law with authority. He caved to his wife's contrary desires, desires that were ultimately described against him. So we could say it another way. 
in marital unity, one of the most important things is for a husband to guard his family according to the law of God. But, but this is not a sermon on marriage. But the reason we have to explain it this way, we have to address Genesis 3, is because whatever we say about Genesis 3, we have to say about Genesis 4. They're the exact same phrase. In Genesis 4, sin's desire is contrary or for Cain, and he must rule over it. In Genesis 4, Cain will fail in precisely the same way his father Adam failed. Sin's desire will be against him, and he will fail to rule sin according to the law of God. And for the first time in your Bible, we have a name for that, which is sin. This is the main point of our sermon this morning that I mentioned at the beginning. Sin's desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. It turns out sin is as much an internal battle as it is external. And starting with Cain's heart of anger and fallen countenance, God warns him of sin and what sin wants. Sin's desire is contrary to you. Sin hates you. Okay, but what's the remedy? Well, text tells you it's master it. Control it. Have dominion over it. Do not obey it, but obey the Lord. Do well, and you will be accepted. So in the same way that marriages are destroyed in Genesis 3, Genesis 4 tells you how a person is destroyed internally by sin, subsequently destroying their relationship with God, and with neighbor, or in this case with God and their brother. In this case, the destruction is actually literal. Cain slays his brother from the anger in his heart, stemming from his unrighteous deeds. Cain, mirroring his father Adam, rejects responsibility. He replies to God, Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So we've moved from the, the tension of the story now, which is Cain's heart, Cain's heart, to the consequence of the story, which is God's response to sin. This is new to Genesis. Genesis 4 is the first time sin is mentioned as sin. For us as readers, we should be wondering how humanity will act following expulsion from Eden. And Genesis 4 gives a swift and concerning answer. Humanity after Eden must now master sin, but the situation is dire. Far from giving hope that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, it appears all too obvious that the seed of the serpent has crushed the seed of the woman. And even more disturbing is the fact that the author shows us the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent come from the exact same parents. And this reality, sin, turns out has nothing to do with biology. There's nothing material about this, but everything spiritual and so serious is this fact that brother will turn on brother and slay him out of hatred for his righteous deeds. And the emphasis on brother 
and the brother relationship is aggressive. So we'll stop and think for a moment. How many times is Abel's name mentioned by itself? The answer is three times. How many times is Abel referenced as Cain's brother? Seven times. And the author's showing you something. The problem is so desperate that we cannot reliably trace the seed of the woman by biology. Even brothers are not safe from one another. So deadly is this new reality. We must wonder, how can such a problem be remedied if the problem is spiritual and not biological? We'll come back to this in our, our application. So there's a, there's a lot of characters in our Bible, but it turns out that sin is actually a, treated as a character here. So sin is crouching at your, do, your door. It's desires for you. The ground's a character. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Uh, the same is true in, in Genesis 3. Throughout your Bible, they're treated as, as like entities almost, meaning sin is not merely an accident or something we can quickly dismiss. Sin is active. Its goals are concrete, real, and devastating, and contrary to you. Sin is all-encompassing. It's not simply limited to internal forces or forces behind the scenes. Sin affects everything from God's relationship to humanity to humanity's relationship to creation. So the grounds of character. Uh, we have examples like Romans 8.20. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even your, te- your, your New Testament links creation, the earth, to the obedience and glory associated with the children of God. And all of this is being captured in Cain's failure in relationship to sin, showing you the real issue, the real consequences, and they're, they're devastating. And we end this section with God's punishment of Cain. He says, the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The Lord punishes Cain, citing the ground's testimony against Cain. Abel's blood, blood he cries out from the ground. The very ground, actually, Cain was called to cultivate and multiply upon the earth, now testifies against him. And in light of all this, God most certainly could have ended Cain's life, as any good Israelite would know. This is Deuteronomy 19. If anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, and attacks him, and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, uh, refuge cities, then the elders of his city shall send him and take him from there, hand him over to the avenger of blood, that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. That's Deuteronomy 19. So you see the author has moved from showing us the error of Cain, he's showing us something else. In the background, we've quietly seen the character of God, and now it's coming right up front, with every Israelite knowing the correct legal response to a manslayer. Turns out God's mercy shines brightly. But it gets worse. Hold on. Cain complains against the mercy of God. 
We should be aghast as readers. We should drop, our jaws should drop at the audacity of Cain, not only murdering his brother in cold blood, but complaining against the mercy of God rather than marveling that he still has a beating heart. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now let's be honest. Cain's probably right. He's probably stating the obvious. A manslayer such as Cain, who is so obviously cursed by God, does not and will not stand a chance. And the author doesn't say who would seek out Cain, but it's not hard to imagine Adam and Eve or any other human alive at this time would understand the justice at hand. And Cain's response allows us to further see the extent of which God's mercy applies. And it turns out God's mercy is abounding. We read, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So incredible is God's mercy that he takes the plea of a manslayer and not only extends him mercy, but offers him sanctuary guaranteed by God's own sign and oath, promising God's own vengeance. All of this is guaranteed by nothing other than the character and nature of God towards a sinner, sealed by a sign. Does that sound familiar? And this section ends exactly as Genesis 3 ends. We read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The way from the presence of God, east of Eden, denied the benefits of the land. As goes the Father, so goes the Son. And far from biology, the issue of mankind lies in its newfound conflict with sin and with God. And man must master it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. Your New Testament is no stranger to this theme. So listen to just a few passages from the New Testament and let the, let the theme of mastery of sin sink in. This is Second uh, Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. This is Romans 6, 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is uh, two verses later. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Six chapters later. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your Bible is full of the call to master sin, to be self-controlled, to not be mastered by anything. And I, I stress this partly because the overwhelming message of today is not to master sin, to give into it, actually, 
uh, we have been trained, submit to your desires. You are who you are. Why fight what God has made you? Master sin, the greatest evil is to deny my dreams. You know, God is for me, so I'll do me. It's no accident. As early as Genesis 4, it anticipates the lies of sin and the corruption of this world. It's no accident your Bible lets you in on God's warning to Cain. Sin's desire is contrary to you. You must master it. I don't know you well enough to know the exact struggles of this congregation. I don't know what sins are crouching at your door other than the sins common to us all. But I do know you need the remedy and you need the power to master sin. And thankfully, for you, for me, the answer is found in Genesis 4, and it's found in the gospel. The answer for Cain was faith in a gracious God. So we remember Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And even before we witness the atrocity of Cain towards Abel, afterwards, it is God in the spotlight. He warns Cain even before he falls into temptation. We wonder often, and even as readers here, where is God in the context of sin, especially after Genesis 3? And it turns out God is there warning mankind of sin and mastery of it requires faith in him. Before Cain even sins, God is active, graciously admonishing and warning humanity of the dangers of sin and to turn in repentance. Well, what about after we sin? Even a sin so heinous, maybe, as murdering someone's brother in cold blood. It turns out God's abounding in mercy there too. After Cain sins, God does not murder him, but gives him the opportunity to confess his sins. And when Cain fails to confess his sins, God is still merciful and does not kill him, but he exiles him. And Cain, when he complains against the mercy of God, God's mercy is demonstrated further in pledging a sign against any who would take vengeance against Cain, a murderer. So how do, we, how do we master sin? Genesis 4 gives you the answer. Heed the call of a good and merciful God who's faithful to warn. He's abounding in mercy, whose laws are good. And should you do well, you'll be accepted. And your New Testament adds its voice. We read this earlier. The love of Christ, that is Christ's love, controls us. Romans 6, sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law, but under grace. You see, we're not able to master sin by pulling up by our own bootstraps, by trying harder, by measuring up to God's law. No. We master sin by being controlled by Christ's love for us. We refuse to let sin have dominion 
by understanding we are not measured by our relationship to God's law, but under the grace of God, which never fails. All these truths come from an understanding of the character of God towards sinners in Christ. He is merciful and faithful. Therefore, go and sin no more. Cain had no such faith in God. Therefore, Cain had no such mastery of sin. And he fell. And far superior to Cain's sign, God has put his sign and seal upon you and his Holy Spirit. And he gives you the physical signs. We took it today of of baptism and communion, Lord's Supper. And he's come to you in power and strength and his spirit to master sin, to resist the devil, to overcome the world. And you are able to do so because Christ has done so. And as our faithful older brother, he died on your behalf, mastering sin, resisting the devil, and he reigns over all principalities and rulers of this world. And he is your God, warning you of sin and calling you to rule over it. And Christian, though your flesh is weak, your flesh is weak, the Spirit is stronger still. And we can anticipate victory even now in the security of the gospel. Where are you today, Christian? Is your countenance fallen? Have you seen the mercy of God and yet resist it? Have you experienced the opportunity for confession and forgiveness and spurned it? Have you suffered through God's merciful discipline though you know you deserve far worse? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Sin is being exposed for what it truly is And God is being seen for who he truly is. And he is worthy to be believed. He is worthy of our faith and repentance. And his mercy and love are abundant in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and the chance to be ministered to by your word and song and um, by the Lord's Supper. Lord, may we be forever conscious of your warning to us of sin's desire for us, Lord, and that sin hates us. However tempting that may be to see wicked men and women prosper, to see the the fleeting pleasures of sin pass us by, Lord, but we know better, and we know a better God who is faithful to warn, who ultimately extends mercy to us. And may we respond in kind to a true Lord, uh, true, true master, even though we are weak, Lord, by the power of your spirit. In your son's name we pray, amen. Rock of Age.